Hey, Sam Mulberry here. So now I want to give you episode one of the Autobiography Podcast. This episode was recorded in February, February 12th, 2014. Uh, and this is with one of my best friends at Bethel and one of my closest collaborators, Dr. Chris Gertz. Uh, I actually haven't listened back to this pod in quite a while, so I'm excited myself to listen to it. Um, I'm recording this intro before listening back to it. Um, a couple notes. If the audio quality is a little rough, this was we were work, starting to work with new equipment and still kind of learning the ropes with that. So I apologize if there's um, if it's there's any sort of suboptimal audio. Um, we'll try. Well, I, they get better as we go on, and um, hopefully as you've listened to other podcasts on this site, um, they sound good to you. Um, this one I think might be a little dodgy, but, uh, the content is really great. So, um, this is my interview with, uh, Professor Chris Gertz and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the first episode of the autobiography podcast. Um, this is, this is a good one. This is uh, Chris Garretts. I was excited to have him as my first uh, my first interview, uh, in part because I feel really comfortable with Chris. Um, we've worked together as you'll um, as you'll hear. We've worked together for a long time. Um, we've really partnered with a lot of media productions and including podcasting. So um, it's pretty it's pretty easy to talk with Chris. And I think he's a really interesting guy. He's one of my uh, closest friends, but also a teacher that I really admire um, in terms of his his ideas about teaching of the way he teaches um, and and the way he thinks about about education the liberal arts pietism all those kind of things are going to come up um, but this was fun because I got to sit down with Chris and listen to um, him tell his story and this is a story that I don't really know very well so this was really uh, really exciting and, and really a good one remember if you want to email the show it's autobiography podcast at gmail.com the show page is autobiography podcast dot wordpress.com um and chris has a i think towards the end he plugs some of uh some of the stuff he's working on he's talking about a book that he's editing um about uh pietism and um and the university um we'll have more about that as it comes up but if you're interested in chris and the stuff he's working on um his blog is the pietist schoolman.com um definitely worth uh worth going to uh for for a read about all kinds of things about the intersections of of um faith and education um and 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 pietism so definitely give that uh give that a read but without further ado um here's the interview with chris all right uh my my guest today is chris garretts um and uh we're gonna do the the intellectual autobiography and um just have a, a conversation and um i'm gonna make chris a little uncomfortable right uh right off the bat this is the part where i'm gonna butter your bread a little bit and just say um you're sort of i mean you're you're teaching is so important to my teaching your career is important to my career um, and likewise can i right. butter your bread too? there you go well that that's why i'm doing this right okay. um but but a lot of what i do is just has been tied to over the last um 10 years really to the work that you're doing um but what's interesting is i know i was thinking today before before uh uh, as I was coming into to work, like I realized, if I had to tell your story, I actually don't know it, um, and maybe that's a sign that as a friend, I don't ask enough questions or or read my blog. Thanks for that. That's probably way. hey, but yeah. the, we're going to let you do some plugs, uh, <laughs> some plugs at some point, right. uh, um, some point as well. Um, but but you're somebody that uh, I, I was sort of writing down some words, and we'll we'll sort of bounce back to these things as I was thinking about um, thinking about you in terms of what are things that would be worth talking about. Um, when I think about you as a teacher, uh, I remember Kevin Craig always talking about um, you sort of 
teaching at the intersection of teaching and preaching. Yeah. Um, so, so for better or worse, that's something that I have kind of attached to, to, uh, to how I think about you. Um, another word is conversion, and I want to come back to that. I mean, that's something that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I did write blog down. Thank you. Um, online with a question mark and pietism. <laughs> those are the words that I that I wrote down. So, so maybe towards the end we'll bounce back to this those. Is like password? Are you trying to get me to name myself? It's sort of like <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're somebody that that um, when you teach, one of the things I find interesting. I mean, you're you're a, a European historian, um, but one of the things I find interesting about how you think about lectures, and one of the things you're always challenging me to do, and I never do, is to sort of start at the end, right? So, so in, or a in sense, the middle, right? Well, start yeah. in the middle is even yeah. better, yeah. yeah. Sort of like American Hustle kind of stuff, exactly, middle, right? Right. So right. that that movie probably touched you in a kind of way. Right? I attended the David O. Russell School of Pedagogy. That's right. That's, that's right. That's um, so why we have like musical numbers and. A lot of swears, you know. That's, that's right. Kind of a Chris Garrett's lecture. Yeah, people who haven't been in CWC for a while, <laughs> things have changed. Um, but but you know, so so I, you know, part of me thinks about you know, I'm excited to talk about your time at Bethel and sort of the intersection of of, of our careers. But but before we do that, I, I'm really interested in going back to to the beginning. And part of this is kind of to think about sort of the roots of. Uh, how did you end up here? Because mm-hmm. um, you're from you're from the Twin Cities area, right? Yeah, mostly grew up in Stillwater, um, but around the St. Paul suburbs. And I, I often tell people I had never had been to Bethel until I came. It was actually a year before I interviewed. I happened to come because I had a relative here, and I dropped by the history department to say hi. Um, but that was the first time, and um, at that point, I had just finished my dissertation. Um, so I was on the East Coast for college and grad school, and... I think I had this idea at some point in my career I'd probably wind up back in Minnesota, but I also had the idea that I'd have to have a sufficiently high profile I could kind of write my own ticket to a place of my own choosing. And instead, I got an email from this a second cousin, I think, whose uh, father works in the physics department and had heard through the grapevine, which is how everything at Bethel happens, that the history department was hiring a European historian. And so the story goes that I emailed Kevin Craig, who was the department chair, and he didn't even know the position was approved. And here he was getting a query from someone he'd never heard about <laughs> who was from Minnesota, um, grew up in the Covenant Church, which is kind of a cousin denomination to the Baptist denomination that sponsors Bethel. And uh, it's kind of, I guess, that's how the story goes. Okay. Yeah. Well, well let, let, let's go back earlier in that story, even in terms of, um, in terms of you know, growing up in Minnesota, you went to, to Mount Park Academy High School, right? Um, yep. Was that was that your was your whole schooling experience in Mounts Park? Mostly, Mounts Park is a K through twelve private um, non sectarian school. So um, I actually came in in third grade. So I had had a couple years in just neighborhood public schools, and then came in in third grade and stayed all the way through uh, through high school graduation. So um, I, I, I think it's probably formative in ways that I don't really understand. Um, and I mean, I don't think. You could find two less similar institutions in ways than Bethel University and Mounds Park Academy. I mean, not just non-sectarian, but I mean, I don't feel like it's actively hostile to religion, but certainly not a place that encourages free expression of religious belief. And um, you know, for some good reason, I think is you know, there's a constituency that's fairly suspicious of evangelicals. But what it was really great as preparing me for college work in general. You know, I, I learned how to write in tenth and eleventh grade classes with Mr. Meacock and Mr. Latham, and much more than I learned in college, I learned in high school. Um, critical thinking, you know, my guess is a lot of that started at Mountains Park. Um, but more than that, I, I'm pretty sure I'm a historian because of a teacher there named Maureen Conway, 
who actually I had as my third grade French teacher. She was moonlighting. And, um, but then also as my seventh and twelfth grade history teacher. And I remember visiting her like a year after I came back to Bethel and I sat in her class and she was teaching World War One, which is one of the things that we we both teach. And I realized that I was I was stealing content and ideas and tricks from her. I never even realized it. It had stuck with me that there is this kind of infectious enthusiasm and this passion that I, I really do think is conversional. And it converted me. And it just it happened in seventh grade, and it just took me until my first year in college to realize it. Um, but that, I, as I look back and do my intellectual spiritual autobiography, that's that's really where it starts. So if you think about yourself as a, I mean, as a I don't know how, how how young you started thinking about kind of what your life was going to look like or what you wanted to do. One of the things I'm interested in are the sort of paths not taken, both in terms of, uh, you know, when you're little, you have all kinds of paths not taken. You know, everybody goes through their fireman, cowboy, astronaut phase. But then the also as you get older, some of the, the literal paths yeah, not taken. Yeah. Like, like, so, so what, were, what were some of those things? Or, or how early did history or academia or teaching when did that stuff start to um teaching was there really early at this it's become semi-apocryphal i think in the retelling but there were there were two days in both third and fourth grade french classes where i asked if i could just talk about french history and i got up and pulled down the map and i talked about napoleon's campaigns and i talked about world war ii and so i think the bug was there and so as i have reflected i, I do trace back to that there it comes fairly easily for me to be up in front of a group of people. Not that I find public speaking non-nerve-wracking, but I feel completely at home doing that. Paths not taken are kind of interesting. I'd say the first would be journalism. About that same time, I think it was actually the summer after third grade, my parents had a friend um, who I think was like a visiting professor at the U of M. He taught at Northwestern's journalism program. He was doing a class that summer. And <laughs> I liked the idea so much, I actually gave up watching to that point, the only baseball all-star game to be hosted by the Metrodome, I guess, the only one ever hosted by the Metrodome, in order to sit in his seminar that night. Because I thought, this would be great. I wanted, I, like, I had a family newspaper that I wrote, my Apple IIe, and there's still a little bit of that itch there. I think it is one reason I'm drawn to blogging. I think it's one reason probably I enjoy really contemporary history. Um, yeah, I, I actually talked with our journalism program director about the overlap between the two disciplines, and... It's probably why I incline more towards a narrative approach to history than a more analytical approach to history. I, you know, we're storytellers, fundamentally. So that's one path that would have been easy for me to see doing in some ways. Um, if you had asked me in my first year in college, the path was going to be law and international law specifically and maybe with some kind of politics down the line. And like my grandfather, my grandpa Garrett's, was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, um, but there's really no great reason for that in retrospect. I think it was more just like, well, I'm kind of a humanities-type person, and this seems like it would fit my skills, and it seems like it's a well-paying job. It was a really 80s thing to do, too. It's true. I mean, like, like we, we joke about this, but I think about the things that I saw on television. Like, that's... Um, I think that the, the, what people in your family do matters, and then the things that you see create possibilities, yeah. right? So I remember... Because I, I, I remember distinctly when I first when I applied to Bethel, I think you had to write you know either what you were going to major in or what job you wanted, and I'm pretty sure at that point I put something like lawyer down, and I think it's because well, a lot of shows on TV were about lawyers, so that was a thing people did, and the only other reference I mean my my both my parents worked at the 
worked for the state. My mom was a teacher, so it was like, okay, so you could be a teacher or you could be a lawyer. Like those are the things that were possibilities. My wife's family, her dad's a doctor, her mom's a her, her mom was a nurse. So it was interesting that they that those kids they didn't all go into it, but they all strongly at some point thought, well, medical careers are the things mm-hmm. you go into. That never occurred to me that that's something you could do. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, I'd never even thought of that until you just said it and it clicks because L.A. Law was my favorite show in the late 80s, which is a weird thing where like an eighth grader really love L.A. Law. But um, it's true. I, and I don't even know why because I don't think I'm especially drawn to the glamour of L.A. or something. But there is something about, you know, the adversarial nature of, I mean, of the kind of discourse that goes on there. The, I mean, the chance to advocate for people, but also for causes to some extent. Well, well it's, I mean, it's, I it seemed like a job where it's like, well, smart people did it. Because yeah. on TV you saw, like, they were they were flawed characters, but they were smart characters. Inarticulate. So, yes, yeah, yeah. smart, articulate yeah. people did it. And regardless of which direction your moral compass took, you could be the lawyer who was the champion for the little guy, or you could be the bad guy. Either, like, right. you had the full spectrum there. Well, and I think probably, um, I mean, it was clear it was a job that was meaningful, and it was a job that people had passion for. And that, I mean, I think that was very important to me. I, I, I think I've always had this unfortunate prejudice against jobs that just seem to be jobs. Right, which is is foolish because they're necessary to the common good. Some people just have to have jobs that don't seem very meaningful. And well, and I think they open they open the door up for vocations right. other than your occupation. Yeah, you know, I, right. I think there there are moments in life where I feel like, oh, if I had a job that like at the end of the day you were done, like what what could I what like important stuff could I do then? And yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's been hard for me to to separate those two when I talk with students about vocation because to me I'm I'm living my calling and it it's hard for me even to feel too aggrieved when the circumstances aren't that great or the compensation isn't fair market value or something. So if administrators are listening to this, they should just forget that. That's like right. Said, no one organizers. No. Let's be um, the other path though that I should mention is one that hadn't really occurred till college and that would have been odd because I'm not terribly creative in this way but i did enjoy songwriting and screenwriting um and i i wrote a couple they're, they're not good in any objective or subjective sense but i think so in any sense <laughs> no not in any sense but I, I think i mean there's this kind of silliness of well, i should go to hollywood and do and that's ridiculous but i mean i think it does explain maybe why i do start lectures in the middle and why you joked about american hustle but i think one reason the two of us have been drawn to each other is we actually have a fair number of conversations about teaching that actually start with how do you make a movie, right? Right. I mean, right. in both story structure, how you how you develop characters. There's an odd amount of overlap there that I don't think would make sense to most of our colleagues. Well, it's interesting if if, if we want to take a step back and think we were just talking about career options because we saw them on TV. Right. Like, I and I wonder. And this will be interesting to see generations going forward. I mean, we're we were a generation of people who grew up on media, grew up on yeah. television, and, and and in doing that, it meant that those things were those things were important, right? They they were formative. So I think about things in that way, and and those were always, I mean, for heaven's sakes, we're sitting here with microphones in right. your office recording something yeah. to put out there, yeah. right? So yeah. so I mean, I think I think that that just is something that I never had to wonder about: is that worthwhile or important? It's like those things are important. Because you can, you can do all kinds of things with them. You know, again, if you want to make a lot of money, there's the potential to do that. If you want to do something important, if you want to change the world, we grew up in a world where media was an option for that. Now, I'm mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see uh, the sort of millennials and whatever the generation after millennials are, mm-hmm. who grew up on an entirely different understanding of media and networked media. 
what's going to be important and of value to them, or what are what are the the boxes that they use uh, to to shape whatever they're doing? Because I think about things in terms of perform like performing, and I think about term things in terms of um, yeah, like like how we structure a, a lecture or how we structure a course, thinking about it like a movie or acts in a play or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I, I'd say two paths not taken because I never considered them might also be enlightening. Um, one is I never really wanted to be a scientist or a doctor, which is odd because my dad's a doctor and a medical researcher. Um, and I actually spent two summers working as a lab tech in a um, molecular biology lab, which was great because it convinced me this is not what I actually want to do. Why no. is that? Well, I, what I'm tempted to say is that I don't actually enjoy research all that much. And I, I, I think that... Um, I talked about this with our with our seniors in our capstone course on Monday night of the nature of research. And in some ways, I mean, we talked about it as a spiritual discipline, actually, in some ways. And it's, it's deeply fulfilling. I also just, in the, I mean, in the way that I come alive as a teacher, that's not how I feel. I have to gear up to research. I, I mean, I have to set aside time. I have to force myself to do it. It's not really tied to a sense of... Um, you know, when I look back in my life, that's not going to be a great measure for me of, of what contribution I made. Um, and it, you know, it's taken me a long time to kind of unsocialize that because in grad school, that very much is the measure of your abilities as a historian and a professor. But what was nice is my dad also then was a model of what it looked like to be an academic. Um, and we had a lot of conversations that were helpful, especially once I knew I wanted to major in history. And then I was trying to decide, I want to teach, but do I want to teach high school? I want to be in the college. And once I was in grad school, it was really nice to have someone who had sat on promotion and tenure committees and supervised dissertations to work through um, what if this is essential, what if this should you push back on, um, the politics of all of it. So anyway, but I never really wanted to be – I mean, I'm not especially drawn to the sciences specifically, but also the idea of, like, being sitting at a bench doing research just it was very isolating to me. Um, it was very repetitive to me, and it didn't allow for the kind of – you don't have the same kind of blank canvas you do when you're teaching history that we get to enjoy. Sure. Um, the other thing I'd say, you, you mentioned, I guess, Kevin's observation that I'm at that intersection of teaching and preaching. I never had any wish, desire, thought of ever being a pastor or preacher of any sort. So the fact that that's come through is in some ways deeply odd to me. I mean, I, I had models of that, and it was a really important part of my upbringing, but it never consciously was something I thought I'd like to do. Well, it's, 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 a fa- it's interesting you say because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, what, what are the equivalents for me? And what I realize is, I mean, so part of your job is you, you serve in this, you preach a kind of conversion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the people around you notice that, mm-hmm. that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is, is I think the same thing about myself. Like, I, I had, if you had asked me, would I ever be interested in being like a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor, I would say never, ever. I'm, I'm not that interested in other people, right? Like I don't, uh, but what's funny is when I, when I describe to someone what I do, like the first part is I say, well, I teach these classes and they're like, okay, I understand that. And I say, but that's only about half of it. And I start talking about the other stuff and I realize I'm doing that job. Like I, I spend a, a considerable amount of time counseling with students i mean at formally and informally and and it's sort of weird like it's as if um something pushed those roads that not only roads not taken but roads you weren't even aware of and yeah. they're just sort of have become part of you where where if those if that stuff went away it would be very strange mm-hmm. but i feel like it's still a path i wouldn't go down you know? yeah I, i've talked with students i think i did this in j term actually that um 
as we think about calling, often it's going to take someone else to even point this out to you. You can be completely oblivious. And it might even not be as someone saying, you know, you really should think about this. It's that circumstances force you to recognize that you have those gifts. Um, and sometimes you're just forced by circumstances to do things you're not called to do, too. So I don't want to glamorize this. Right, right, right. But yeah. but I think I, I think what the things that we're talking about are things that it's not – we didn't do for a season out of necessity. But they've become part of us. Yep. and. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's I think that that's really really fascinating. Um, you talked about sort of how you're similar to your ways you're different than your dad and mm-hmm. similar to your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also the the father of children, mm-hmm. and this is to me is is infinitely fascinating. I have mm-hmm. I have two children who are older than both of yours. Mm-hmm. You sort of hit the uh, the the having kids home run grand slam of having twins who are different genders. I know. Like, so you, you got it all at once. So um, as you look at, this is sort of Augustine doing confessions, looking at infants, trying to learn about himself. As you watch your kids who are both four, right? Yep. Just turned four. Yep. Um, what have you learned about yourself as a child by watching them? Myself as a child. Um, <laughs> different things from both of them. I mean, I, it's just... I don't know if this is a quote where you're going for, but it's very easy to see myself um, in both of my children, but in very different ways. Sure. Like my daughter's meticulous, sometimes fastidious nature, um, but also the analytical nature. Like she, you take her to the doctor, and she'll watch it as she's getting a shot, or she's had blood drawn once. She's very clinically detached. Watching, but there's that's not a huge part of me, I think, but that's that's definitely there, and kind of the curiosity about how the world works and taking it apart. Um, my son, whose reaction to the doctor for a long time was simply to cry hysterically, and he does not enjoy the doctor. Um, I, I think there's a little bit of that kind of, um, to the extent I'm an optimist, and that I tend towards finding joy in what I do. Isaiah's like, he's the most purely joyful person I've ever mm. met, actually. Joy and perpetual motion are the two things yes. I think about when I see him. <laughs> right, and he's also, um, he gets very absorbed in tasks. And I get frustrated with that because I'm trying to get him to listen to me. And so I you know, mistakenly think of this as you know, he, you know, some vice on his part. He just doesn't care what I've said. And, and my wife had to point out, this is what it's like trying to talk to you sometimes if you're on your computer, if you're reading mm-hmm. a book. Or, and, and that ability to immerse yourself to the point where your senses almost shut down. That's been interesting to see in a sure. four-year-old sure. version of someone who shares some of my DNA. Right. I mean, the... the that was that was the thing that struck me is is just the way they serve as mirrors of myself and mirrors of my family. Yeah. You know, like you 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 meet people, and sometimes you meet the weird aunts and uncles in your life that appear in your kids, and those are always. I, I think it's much more clear with your son. It's been yes. interesting to hear you talk about talk about him and thinking back about your own experience of school and your own development. Yeah, it's it, it, banked is is me, and it's like you said, it's frustrating because mm-hmm. you're. You're fighting with the version of yourself, but you also recognize, like, oh, I remember what that was like. I, I mean, I remember what it was like to just not do my schoolwork because, well, there was other things to think about, and and being, you know, um, immersed in in his mind. Uh, um, and even it's well, funny, even the things he's interested in. His at his school, they did a unit on ancient civilizations, and I was telling him, like, you know, that's kind of what I teach, and he got really excited about that. But then, like, he's, you know, telling me about Greek mythology, and I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, this, I'm, I'm amazed how much stuff is hardwired into mm-hmm. us, you know, is, is part of that. Um, 
But yeah, I think I think that they they provide these kind of these kind of mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you th- as sort of sort of jumping back to you know we were sort of getting to thinking about career choices things like that. Um, you graduate from high school in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and what was your what was your path for? I mean, you ended up at William and Mary, mm-hmm. but what, what what was your path there? What was um, my path was? I didn't really want to go to college close to home. Um, it's not because I had a bad relationship with my parents. It was a really good relationship with my parent, my parents and my siblings. It was more, I think I was self-aware enough to know that I needed to challenge myself and go a different place. I kind of wanted to just be a different part of the country, too. And I think Virginia is, there's a little bit of family history on the other side of the state. It was almost entirely because we happened to have a guidance counselor whose son, I think, had gone, maybe son and daughter had gone to colleges in Virginia. And so I remember when I first did, like, this is like early 90s databases and you'd plug in information and shoot back and it was all these like northeast schools i still remember getting tufts university every time i put anything in anywhere but she said well you should have you thought about virginia and i think i had a kind of typical midwesterners yankees sort of attitude about the south sure but I, I i took it seriously enough i did some research and when my parents and i did the kind of typical summer drive out to colleges we we went to three schools in Virginia, I applied to all of them and was accepted to them and, and picked so, Lloyd so and Mary. So which schools were those? Um, let's see. Washington Lee University is a small private school in Lynchburg. Um, I think University of Virginia I applied to and then William and & Mary. And William and & Mary was odd because if you hear that I got a history degree at William & Mary, you would think I'm interested in colonial American history. And the only American history class I ended up taking was part of a foreign policy history sequence with a grad student. I didn't take any... 18th century. I didn't do archaeological things. I didn't, you know, do the thing where you go be an interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, I actually came because I wanted to do international relations. It was going to be my path to law. And they had just got a bunch of money to set up a new center. They're emphasizing study abroad. They're bringing a lot of speakers. Um, they had a tradition of um, having diplomats or other foreign policymakers. Like Colin Powell, I think, was the chancellor the year I came. Um, so, I mean, it seemed like this was a program that had a lot of energy and resources, and I loved the idea of, of doing IR. Um, and then got there and realized, I actually probably would have been better in playing an international studies program that did literature more, because I, I took like three econ classes and hated it the whole time. And soon realized I didn't really like the program, and I really didn't know why I wanted to be in law, and left me a little bit of drift. So it's this weird thing where I went to a Mary almost... It was my default, but, like, of those three, I picked William & Mary because it offered me a little bit of money. It was cheaper than Washington and Lee. And I think even that I had the sense my education wasn't going to be done with my bachelor's, whether it was law school or something else, Mm -hmm. I'd keep doing something beyond it. And so I do remember having this. I felt fine with my decision. I didn't agonize about it for a long time once it was made. You know, I was nervous to hear back from schools and I wanted to know if I got scholarships. But once it was done, I was like, well, this is fine. It'll be okay. And so I also look back and don't attach quite as much importance to college. I mean, I didn't form relationships. I didn't really immerse myself in the culture. I actually got through in three years because I was trying to save money and I was in a hurry to get to the next step in my life. Um, Which is funny to think about. Yeah. I mean, the way the way that, that you would articulate – or the way you talk to a student who – had those motivations now would be very different. I know. I, I use myself as a negative example so many times. And I mean, I, I don't think it was necessarily the wrong decision for me because I knew once I picked my field, once I knew that I wanted to teach college, I, I knew what the professional path was. I knew I was probably going to grad school right away and, um, you know, I set my mind to it and, and it worked out. I also feel like 
I missed out then. And so much of what we especially would underscore is distinctively important about the college experience. And, you know, to some extent, that wouldn't have been present at William & Mary. It's like 6,000 undergraduates. So it's a small state university, but it's a state university. It's a big campus. It doesn't have the kind of intimacy and sense of community. You know, I got to know some professors decently well, but you don't have the kind of relationships that I think at our best we do at Bethel or other Christian colleges or other small private colleges generally. Um, so it, it's interesting then to see that absence in my own life and then think about, well, what what do I value about what happens here as opposed to that? Sure. Now, is there is there a version of Chris Garrett's? Is there an alternate universe of Chris Garrett's? Because you, you mentioned thinking about teaching broadly is there a version of chris garrett that was a high school teacher or is that does that not exist um it's i haven't had a lot of experience with high schoolers but i have done some interactions with our eighth grade confirmation class and i definitely cannot teach middle school it's it, i mean it's an age which i don't know how to communicate i have an easier time talking to four-year-olds and our fourth grade sunday school kids than to eighth graders and i suspect at least ninth and tenth grade would be similar enough i could see myself teaching an AP U.S. or European history class at a kind of school like Mountains Park. Right? So it was would basically be like a freshman college class. Exactly. Right, yeah. right, I, mean, right. I mean, which, yeah, I, sh- I should say, probably a lot of what I'm doing actually is similar to high school teaching and the fact that I do first-year programs. And what is in there's terms, at least I think a it transitional. Some of the content type, though, but yeah. the, the way it's able to be delivered, right. that to me, that's one of the big differences. I mean, obviously, you have the uh, behavior kind of stuff you have to deal with, things like that, but the the way it's delivered and the, the way you can set expectations for students yeah. um, and students are for better or worse, have a kind of autonomy to how they're going to respond to those. Yeah. I think I would have at the time said it's about behavior. Um, I, I think in retrospect, I think it is about autonomy, both for students and for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know enough teachers to know what their days look like and the kind of um, external constraints on what they do. And, I mean, failing everything else, I have a job where, uh, you know, at least within the classroom and a lot of things that go into it and a lot of other stuff, I have a lot of freedom. And I don't think I would have had that if I were a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. So I, I do value that about teaching in college. Um, something else. Oh, the other reason I, I should say that I ended up going to William & Mary, I didn't apply to any Christian colleges. And so that's the other irony of where I teach now is at the time, 17-year-old Chris never wanted to go to Bethel. I hadn't been here, but I'd been to Northwestern what before. Was your, what was your, I mean, I know you grew up in the Covenant Church, mm-hmm. but like, it's one thing to say you grew up in a church, mm-hmm. but it's another thing to talk about that, your experience of the church. Your, I mean, because you're somebody who's on your, president of your church board. I mean, you're deeply involved mm-hmm. in your church, in your denomination, in the traditions of your church. You mm-hmm. are that now. What would 17-year-old Chris, how would he respond to that? Um, probably passive-aggressively. I mean, it, to the extent I ever had a rebellious stage, it was in this. I mean, it's not, I mean, I went to a Baptist church every Sunday. I, mean, I was very religious, I think, from the outside. I took religion courses, not quite knowing how to think about what that meant as a religious person. Um, but it was a stage in my life where I think I had some pretty serious doubts and levels of doctrine, on social issues, um, churches involved with politics. And so I, I don't think I felt the same attachment denominationally to the church. I mean, our church was also going through a split, you know, about the same time I was applying to colleges. So there's a little bit of that probably alienating me. Um, I also didn't have any family 
um, examples of going to Christian colleges. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad went to the U of M um, and didn't grow up in a religious family, and so that wasn't something we knew about. My mom didn't go to college. She grew up in a, in a you know, deeply covenant family, a fairly conservative one. But I've asked her about it in retrospect, like, you know, I mean, is the reason you didn't go to college, I mean, if it was just financial, like, would, you know, if, if you had had the money, would you have gone to North Park? which is the Covenant College in Chicago. And she, oh, no, North Park was too liberal. I, mean, I huh. think there is a little bit of that sense of, at least for her, that was never an option. Even if it had, she never would have done it. And so I never got the sense of, well, you should think about Christian colleges. Even though I, her younger siblings went to, a couple of them to Bethel, a couple to Northwestern. So that actually exists in the family, but I never heard them talk about it. I certainly didn't value. I mean, if they had talked about it, I don't think I would have understood it or really been looking for that in my own life. Um, I mean, and I was also ambitious enough. I think, yeah, I went to William and Mary. I could have gone to Georgetown. I mean, I was waitlisted at Harvard. But, I mean, I, I was looking for elite schools mm-hmm. in a sense. And, sure. I mean, Christian colleges would have showed up. I mean, I don't think I really had any awareness of Christian colleges until I was applying for jobs coming out of grad school. Sure. And someone so, mentioned Wheaton. I had never heard of Wheaton before. That's funny. I, that, right. I mean, that that's uh, we come from very different backgrounds, yes. you and I. But but that that was funny to me when I because I, I came to Bethel and I'm I, I wrote down that um, your relationship to Bethel that you're sort of um, a cousin to the fold or you mm-hmm. you grew up adjacent to this this specific fold, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't even know you. I didn't know you went to a Baptist church around. I thought you were a Covenant church. Well, out yeah, I me mean, in Virginia, there were no Covenant options. No, growing up, I mean. Oh, you know, I went to a Covenant church growing you did? up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so I mean, so so neither of us are from this 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 the fold of the BGC or anything yeah. like that. But I remember coming to Bethel um, and hearing students talk about Wheaton as if it was as if it was Oxford or right. Harvard. And I just remember thinking, how can a school be this good that I've never heard of? And mm-hmm. and. And yeah, and and when people were talking about how they came to Bethel because they couldn't get into there, and you know, and and yeah, and I just yeah, yeah I was just sort of stunned that this amazing, you know, and I, I yeah, I just think that's a very it's a very funny thing how within certain circles something can have a lot of gravity to it, but oh yeah, you step, you step even half a step outside of that circle and it it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, also more broadly, I had no understanding of evangelicalism. You know, generally about um, American religious history. I mean, I, I really, if you had asked me in when I was seventeen, what's an evangelical? I would have had no idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though I went to an evangelical covenant church, and it's probably because the covenant has a kind of weird relationship with evangelicalism. But so, I mean, even once I found out what Wheaton was, I still didn't know what to make of it. I remember because I applied to a few Christian colleges, and I would always have to have a conversation with the dean or the provost about the faith statement, and like, this sounds like you're a fundamentalist. What does this mean? And it really was not probably until some way through my first semester at Bethel that any of it started to click. So I appreciate the people who hired me because I can't imagine my essays. I mean, they can't. They must have betrayed I mean, the lack of understanding of what was going on. Or I mean, it was very. It was incipient. I mean, I, right. I started to hang out with some grad students from philosophy and theology programs at a Baptist church in New Haven, and I think I started to sort of absorb the faith learning integration stuff, but. I mean, it was just, it was in cohate, you know, I was just starting to talk aloud about things, and I mean, I, I would I would attribute a lot of this to relationships, firstly with you know people like Kevin Craig and G W Carlson, and then especially to having to teach CWC. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I don't know if I framed this for you before, but I think we both our conversion experiences were through CWC. 
Yeah, 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 in very different ways, yeah. but, but, but in different times in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, 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 let's back up and finish oh, yeah. up William and Mary, though. Sure. Um, so you talked about the reasons you didn't do IR, mm-hmm. um, and you talked about some sort of roots of interest in history, but c- can you connect those dots? Or oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have a datable or, like, a moment of religious conversion, but I, I don't have the date. But I know exactly where I was when I converted to being a history major, and... It was kind of a series of, they're all connected. I was taking an intro to European history class taught by a medievalist named Marianne Brink. And I remember the first time I was kind of intrigued is we did a whole class just in like um, water mills in Mesopotamia. And I thought, I, well, that's weird. Why am I interested in this? And then we read an excerpt from the Domesday book and talked about Norman England. I thought, well, that, huh, that, I hadn't thought about using evidence. What's embarrassing is what really happened was she was sponsoring a medieval film series. And so we went, I went I like Monty Python, so I thought, well, I'll go watch the Holy Grail and realize there's actually a kind of sophistication there that, you know, then I watched Lion in Winter, which is really a horrible historical film, but there's something about that and the way that she was so clearly passionate that evoked these memories of seventh grade U.S. history and Miss Conway and evoked memories of being that third grader who just couldn't talk enough about Napoleon or about the kid who liked Greek mythology. I mean, there's another similarity we had, and it kind of clicked that well and, and i don't remember agonizing about that either it was like probably because i hated the econ stuff it's like, well, that's, that's, i'm just gonna be a history major and we'll kind of figure out what's going to happen but i think i already kind of had the sense this won't be law this will be teaching at some uh-huh. level sure yeah i mean i don't i don't yeah i don't know how else to explain because I, I don't even like medieval history or ancient history all that much so it's not the particular content matter of that course it was more watching a historian who loved what she did do what she did and sure. thinking sure. i want that for my life well and i think that you know to to just think about i think about all the conversations that we've had about teaching and what do you do with the classroom and i mean what you just said right there if if that was your argument for what you do in the classroom is just sort of do what you do do what you love and do it well and do it on display for the students like you could do worse than that. Oh yeah, I, I'm. We'll we'll talk more about this, I'm sure. But I'm convinced that that's by far the most important thing we do. Uh, and yeah, we'll talk about David Williams, I'm sure, in his. But I, I'm just reading his chapter in a book we're working on. And, and David, for listeners, is a colleague of ours who taught at CWC. He was a Bethel student himself, and I think helped both of us think about the nature of teaching. And in this chapter, he's writing. He's essentially it is this. You know, kind of like an altar call. I mean, you are right. attempting to get people to love something for the sheer sake of loving something, and that something is knowledge and learning. And you know, I can extrapolate back to my own experience and say that's what happened to me. Sure. Yeah. sure. So, so you graduate from William Mary three years with a history degree, mm-hmm. and do you go do you go right to Yale? I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is another semi regret. I sometimes talk with students who are interested in grad school, and I tend to encourage them find something else to do because it means i've had this uninterrupted life i mean that hopefully will go until retirement where i'm just in school and, and how, how old were you when you graduated from i was 20, 20. okay yeah. so you went you went into yale at 2021 20, yeah i think i did 21 like two months into grad school okay yeah okay. yeah which because that's different too. i mean i remember yeah. um i mean and i i took a year i graduated from bethel at 22 took a year off and still starting graduate school feeling like I am a tiny kid, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people here who who have just seen the world more than I have. Yeah, I mean, it. it I when I said that I started at Mount Spark in third grade, I actually started that year in second grade. In November, went to third grade, and then I finished college in three years. And so, 
it was, but that was the first time I really felt developmentally behind and just like I hadn't read as much. There were people who had done masters at Stanford who were in my cohort and PhD and I was at, it's always the elite history department. Um, I felt completely out of my element. You know, it was partly having been a, you know, decently successful student in a relatively small pond, all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are the best and you measure yourself against them. Um, so that was, it, that was hard. I just was immature in a lot of ways, relationally and emotionally. And uh, it was a hard, especially first year, I'd say. But it, it was also hard because I do remember, I don't know if I wrote about this in the essays applying, but I do remember going in almost defensively, like, you're going to want me to do research and I want to teach. Like, I want to go to a huh, smaller so that was college. There oh, yeah. And I don't even know why because I didn't really have... There's no example of that, like why I'd want to be at a school of like 1,000 to 2,000 students. Right. That sounds like something that somebody who graduated from here would say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, I think there is that kind of you know, biblical idea of stumbling through the dark, reaching for something you don't quite know, but you know, right? I mean, I think that was there. And that was something that endured somehow. Because there was a lot of pressure. People already were talking about the postdocs they were going to do, and they were thinking about how they're going to get their first book published. And I remember thinking about how are they how are they going to teach this class? How do you run a seminar? How do you do a lecture for four hundred students about military history? And fortunately, I had professors that were mostly pretty committed to that and enjoy. There's kind of this tradition at Yale of the senior professors teach a lot of first and second year classes plus their graduate seminars. And those are the ones that I got to be a teaching fellow in. And so I got to watch these just world-renowned scholars just really love talking about the Cold War to 400 sophomores and, and juniors, basically. And think about how do you integrate media into a classroom? And they're just starting to use PowerPoint. So I got to watch them stumble their way through that. Sure. And, I mean, there is no pedagogical training past like a six-week kind of workshop. I mean, like Wednesday night workshop. I mean, it was horrible. They didn't do anything to teach me how to be a teacher, except that I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I was being attentive. And I had you know, professors then who reciprocated and invested and in talking about what are we going to do this week? How do you grade? How do you lecture? Right. Yeah. And that, and that, in some ways, that's that's the best advice for anybody who wants to be a teacher yeah. is is uh, pay attention to the teachers you have. Pay attention to teachers you had. Think about, you know, as you were talking about the the third grade French teacher who taught you history, like, mm-hmm. like think about what made that person effective. What were they doing? Cause it's not about the con. I mean, it's not about the content no. usually, but it, it's, it's probably about their relationship to the content and the relationship to the class and those types of things. But yeah, I mean, I think I've had zero training. I've had less than no training in terms of being a teacher other than I've spent my entire life in a classroom. Yeah. And if I, if I haven't figured it out, figured out like some of it by now, like, I'm never going to. Yeah, and it's probably, I mean, that experience probably has shaped my idea of how you develop teachers. It's probably not that there's going to be this list of best practices or some rubric or, you know, if we well, just do training in it, you'll become a good teacher. I I probably do have this kind of artisanal sense, like, well, you're mentored by people, and to some extent you probably, you have to have the right stuff. I mean, it's, you probably have to have some native talent for it that sure. gets identified and cultivated, and you you fail and you learn and well that's part of your job as a yeah. teacher to see that in yeah. people too yeah. and say you should you know you should think about being a teaching assistant um because there might be some opportunities for you to realize some stuff about yourself and it may not mean that you become uh, you know a licensed high school teacher it may not mean that you become a, co- a college professor but there's something about you that does this well and you need to figure out 
how to use that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good conversation I've had with a few education students that they know they want to teach, and so you go into an education program. Some of them realize they actually don't want to do that. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's good. Well, I mean, where else do you teach? You know, is this going to connect to your life I mean, in family, in a church, in a neighborhood, in a community? Mm-hmm. I, I think most of us probably teach a lot more than we realize that we do. Just We just don't call it that or we don't think of it as a profession. But, um, yeah. There might not be things to say. There. That's all right. No, that, that that's fine. So, so, I mean, in terms of your time at Yale um, – how I'm always curious, like how uh, connected to your community there did you feel? Because that's not a small school, but you're in a small pool in that school. Um, a little bit. I think I was more intentional about it. I think I'd already had, probably like partway through college, I kind of realized, you know, you're living off campus, you're taking 18 credits, you're not doing anything extracurricular, you're probably missing out and it's too late to change, but... I, like I, I do have kind of dim memories of like I'm going to go to the mixers. I'm going to get to know people, and um, it was a small enough cohort of diplomatic history people that we knew each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in classes the first two years, you see them often enough. And a lot of us lived in the same part of New Haven because there was cheap housing and professors were nearby, and so we do seminars together. Um, I'm also just not super social, mm-hmm. and so I didn't make huge friendships there. I mean, the friendships I have from grad school were actually with, like, philosophers that I played in church bands with. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the kind of connection that I made was really much more through the church than the grad school. Um, the one difference is that I was part of an interdisciplinary center that um, had its own space, um, on, um, not off campus, but kind of away from the main academic buildings, from the main, the Hall of Graduate Studies. And so that had a little bit of community to it, and it centered around a couple of professors whose houses we were at often mm-hmm. enough. Um, but, like, once I got into my dissertation, I had two advisors. I didn't, you know, unless I happened to be teaching for them, I didn't really talk to them a whole lot. I, you know, asked them for money a couple of times because the exchange rate changed when I was in Europe. But otherwise, they, they weren't really hands-on, and they knew I kind of worked independently and... So I haven't really kept up with them, which is something I regret. Huh. I also don't know what they would make of my trajectory. Sure. <laughs> which sure. I'm kind of curious to like go back and say, here's what I've done with my Yale degree. And well, let, let's get into what you did with sure. your Yale degree. So um, I know you taught sort of as you were doing your dissertation. And um, how soon after finishing your dissertation were you – did you apply here? Did you, you did you teach for a while? Um, I finished in May of 2002 and was on the job market kind of half-heartedly, but it wasn't, I mean, when I was interviewing, it wasn't finished, so I didn't get any serious nibbles. And so I was an adjunct at a couple of schools near Yale, um, Southern Connecticut State, which is the local state university, and then Sacred Heart University, which is a diocesan Catholic school in Fairfield County. And um Sacred Heart was probably the closest to a Bethel it had just because it was a smaller, sure. somewhat religious private university. Um, it was not great prep for this um, in many ways. But it was the first time I had to teach, like, a, they had a class called Civilizations, which was units of Greek, um, medieval Renaissance Italy, kind of Victorian industrial England, and then China, kind of tucked in for variety's sake. And at the time, I remember just feeling completely unprepared, certainly to do the China part, but even to do the Greek part. Um, but it's interesting. That actually is my kind of preview of something like CWC. And it was really good to be forced to fail a lot. It was the first time I'd been solely responsible for something and realizing I didn't know how to pitch material. I didn't know how to integrate lecture and discussion. I didn't really know why I was doing mm-hmm. 
It was also hard because you're brought in as a hired gun. Sure. I mean, you have well, no okay. control over it, and, and so it was frustrating. In that Let sense. me ask you. So you're probably 26, 27? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 26. I, I'm, I'm curious by the, you know, having the chance to fail. In all honesty, how much failure had Chris Garrett's encountered right. in life? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> – I mean, aside from there are a couple of classes in grad school that were really hard that helped me realize I'm not going to be an intellectual historian, Chris. Um, yeah, no, that was absolutely part of it. Is um, and, I mean, I think I was good at a wide variety of things, too. But I'd also kind of found a path. I'd found a niche. I'd found what I was good at and kind of carved out what I was going to do. And then to actually be thrown into something you weren't prepared for and maybe hadn't thought enough about. So that was a good experience in retrospect. Um I just feel bad. While you're in it. Yeah, it was. And I felt bad for the students, too. I mean, I, I felt like, what what can you possibly be getting out of this? It was such a diverse group of students, too. I was never sure, like, how to connect with them or what to sure. pitch it at or what they were going to do with it. I, It made me really appreciate coming to Bethel in that the attentiveness to gen ed um, and to the role of Christian and Western culture, one course within it. The fact that there was development within that, there was team building, um, that you would actually talk about how you teach, even in the course of the semester. I mean, just by contrast, the experience of being an adjunct, teaching just some Western Civ stuff on your own was remarkably stark. Sure, yeah. sure. So that, but that was my own real. I mean, I actually went back for a spring at Yale and was kind of a returning teaching fellow in a military history class I'd done before. But and then I did I did summer school two summers at Yale. Um, but that was my only teaching experience, and then I got here. I mean, I applied in, like, February of 2003, interviewed the first week of March. Jay Barnes offered me the job as I was leaving, and by the end of the week, I'd said yes, and that was it. Wow. Yeah, it was this whirlwind kind of thing, and then I was coming back to Minnesota. So so what were what were your uh, your early impressions of Bethel? Not having, I mean, not having had an experience at a place like this. Yeah, I mean, my first impression was G.W. Carlson, because I had been here exactly a year before when my brother was getting married. And I stopped by, and I gave he asked for a copy of my dissertation, which I thought was strange. And then I saw his library and understood this is how you get a library like that. Um, so, yeah, my first impression was G.W., which, insert your own jokes here if you're a Bethel person. But, I mean, I think it was, I didn't understand that phenomenon at first. But um, as I think about the direction my interests have gone, my commitment to the place, that that starts i mean that's how much of that do i lay at his feet i mean the the passion for the school and what makes it distinctive entirely is his is his doing um the other impression i I always mention is that i i was shocked much art there was Hmm. around bethel um again because i had this kind of i had this idea that christian college at some level equals fundamentalist and fundamentalist for me meant retreat from culture suspicion of creativity and freedom of expression and so to come to a place which on some levels isn't very aesthetically appealing and yet there's all this art in very public spaces without a lot of effort to even try to explain it certainly Mm -hmm. not to defend it it's simply this is part of the culture and it's obviously important to us that we have an art department that's producing this and students too not just Hmm. faculty and i don't think i realized at the time that we had some collections from some some from decently important artists um but that, that kind of stuck out in a vague sense to me um I was just like coming back to Minnesota. Like, I mean, because I have a fairly unusual last name, 
if people had met a Garrett's before, they, they, they had stories to tell. Because mm-hmm. my aunt was the mayor of a little town called Falcon Heights, just south of here, where some of my colleagues live. And they asked about that. And one of the business professors had played hockey in Wyoming with my Uncle Bob. And, yeah, so that was, it was, mm. it was like, oh, this is going to be like a family. Like, this is coming back home. And a lot of, and it is. I mean, it, I was also coming back to my denomination, to my church, where I ended up going to a church with a lot of people I'd grown up with, and they knew me when I was 13. So that was part of it that was kind of strange. Um, I don't think I really had a good read on what was distinctive about Bethel within the Christian college world, because mm-hmm. I'd only been really to a couple others at that sure. point. Um, even really what it meant to be a Christian college. What I do remember is I, I tell students this, that I've, I never understood when people would say, like, God spoke to them. Mm-hmm. And I still don't understand that because I still don't feel like I've heard a voice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I seriously do remember at the end of every, almost every experience on the interview thinking, like, there was this kind of nagging voice saying, this is where you should be. Hmm. And, and and me fighting back and saying, well, is it this just because I want to go back to Minnesota and, you know, my brother lives here at this point and it's a job? Um, and, and it, no, there was kind of this steadily mounting thing saying these are the people you should be with these are the students you whose life you're going to impact well i mean even you you know listen to what you were saying about yourself going into yale and some of the things you were running up against right this is a place that's asking you to teach yeah yeah yeah, i mean as i was on the market i had three very distinct experiences I, i i i went to a research university they didn't ask me to teach anything i mean they asked me to give a talk about um a dissertation chapter, basically, and then to interview a couple of professors and to go on a tour with a grad student. And that said a lot. Hmm. And that was very clearly not a place I wanted to go. And they didn't offer me the job, so it worked out for everyone. <laughs> um, I went to another Christian college that in some ways is pretty similar to Bethel. Um, they had me teach kind of in their Western Civic course, the Scientific Revolution lecture. They had me come in to do something on French education in the 19th century, which was cool. They also had me do kind of a job talk. Thing. And, and they did have a lot of questions about your scholarly agenda. Mm-hmm. That didn't show up hardly at all at Bethel. Uh, it was, you know, go in, um, teach this kind of 200-level Western history class, and I did something about Nazism in the 1930s. Um, sit in on senior seminar at night, listen to what our students are doing, what the research looks like that they're doing, um, and talk with them a little bit about what it's like to be a, a scholar. But very few people ask me about my research. In some ways, you know, I probably should raise a red flag like well that that is an important part of a lot of scholars life this happened for me i was bored to death with my dissertation i was dreading the idea of turning into a book and so i was thrilled to not have to talk about it at that point what's odd is in retrospect i talked to gw about this and he said well when we hired you we thought we were getting like a scholarly superstar like a research (laughs) superstar like oh what is wrong with you did you not look deep i mean like my body language about it and um I'm glad that that didn't come through because if they had said something like that, that would have been a major turnoff, and I don't think I ever would have come here. But instead, it was very clear that these are people who love teaching and who love students, and I think that's what was crystallizing. Mm-hmm. And that they liked each other, too. I mean, that, that, that's My best friends all work here, besides my wife. I mean, I, I have almost no real friendships apart from this place and a few kind of enduring friendships. Um, in some ways, that's hard. Uh, I don't know if I picked up on that exactly, but I, I think that's another piece of the culture that I was drawn to, mm-hmm. is that I knew I wanted my work to matter. It wasn't going to be something that I'd be here for a few hours and then check out of. But, sure. You know, I'd, I'd be deeply sure. intertwined with the life of the place. And 
Look what happened. There you go. Well, this is the fun part of the story because this is where I intersect with your story. That's so what I, I've been I, building to. That's right. That's right. So I, I know. I Except know that we didn't really know each other for at least. No. A what's years. funny is I, I was thinking this morning. I was thinking, what were my first impressions of, of Chris? Because we were on different lecture teams. Mm-hmm. So we both. I started at Bethel at 2000, in 2001, um, but just doing adjunct teaching. And 2003 was my first year full time. So, so in some ways, 2001 is my first year. In some ways, 2003 mm-hmm. is my first year. And then 2005 was my new <laughs> faculty year. So I kind of have three years where I can say I started. Um, but I remember, I remember being like, I didn't know you well because you were on the other mm-hmm. team. But I was super intimidated by you because. You were young, like you and I look similar. Right, right, you're young, right. but you went to Yale and you had a PhD. And and we, what's funny is we replaced a married couple that yes, was here. Yep, and I remember yep. just thinking, like, I, I I didn't know you, and I just thought, and and I I people who know me know that I um I fear change, right? And I and so you were you were a potential agent of change. You were the person who was going to come in and mess everything up here. So I remember being, I mean, really until the summer of two thousand. Yeah, I think so. Feeling like I just like I just didn't know what to make of you. Mm-hmm. You know, had you been older, it would have been easier. Had you been somehow like you were, you were similar enough to me that I, I felt very uh, threatened is a weird word to use, but that's sort of how I felt. Yeah, it's it's weird. I think on my part, it was simply that we didn't teach on the same team. So past like the summer workshops, I mean, the same way I, I really didn't get to know a lot of people. Like I didn't get to know Amos Young the year he was here, and I didn't really get to know Sarah until she sure until she switched. Up, and, yeah. yeah, so and it was partly just that I was also getting to know a ton of other people, right? right? And right. Um, but it is hard to imagine in retrospect because. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we replaced a married couple. In some respects, I think that is sometimes how colleagues and students look at this. Uh, let's not push this too far, right. but I think there is an extent to which we're kind of joined at the hip in all yes. things CWC-related. Yeah. I mean, to the point that we, we've got a Brangelina kind of name. Yes, we do. We finally learned about <laughs> um, Let's talk more about this, Sam. I sense great interest. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, no, but so the summer 2005, we, we uh, both independently, I think, mm-hmm. volunteered for a project that somebody proposed this is a cwc summer meeting yeah um and it was to to make i i, I wish this is, i'm somebody who's like my job is the history of this course and i don't remember whose idea it was somewhere i feel like it, it drifted somewhere between david williams and stacy hunter hack yeah um but somebody thought we should shoot a video for the first day of class and i i, I distinctly remembered the, the numbers five to ten minutes right. being like you know something to kind of introduce students to the class and and I think because of what we had talked about previously in terms of just thinking about media and entertainment as like, well, that's just a naturally worthwhile, valuable mm-hmm. thing. We both signed up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we spent that summer – I didn't know a thing about how to make make oh, films right. at all. Yeah, and yeah. I don't I don't get the impression you did no, either. No. And, and so we spent that summer just diving into this project that kind of kept growing and growing and growing um, until it was 55 minutes long. And it's this <laughs> – Bizarro. I, it's interesting. I've been watching this documentary on Netflix about the history of, of film. Hmm. Super pretentious, but it's really interesting. But I, I'm interested in like how rapidly they went from, you know, Thomas Edison being able to, to like <laughs> capture images in succession mm-hmm. to like people making eight-hour movies about Napoleon. Like, yeah. It happens oh yeah. In, in twenty years. Not yeah. even. Yeah. 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 You know, and 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 the thought of like this is that sort of what we did. We went from like, oh, we can. We can record somebody talking to let's make an epic, right. and it's 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 very bizarre. But but I think that sort of started to seal a friendship in terms of 
oh, we can we can work together on mm-hmm. on things, and we ha- and we and we creatively mesh together pretty well. Mm-hmm. You're musical, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm visual, and mm-hmm. you're less so. I'm not yep. gonna say you're not, but you're less yeah, so. Not really. Um, and so we realized, oh, we sort of fill in some of those gaps for each other, and uh, and and then just since then we've done lots and lots and lots of projects. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, we should probably spend. I don't know how long we've done this already. We can spend another hour talking just about this. I would just say I don't actually have a natural like desire to do collaborative teaching. Like It, it takes work for me to actually be on CWC and be a team teacher. Because there, there's a level to which I would kind of just like to teach the class myself because that's how I teach almost every other class. Sure. It is I mean, whatever I know about collaboration is really not just from that class. It's from working with you. And um, I think it'd be hard to explain, too, because it's not like we sit down and bracket out, here's what Krista... I mean, I think it comes fairly naturally by this point, but it, like even my memory of that first one is, you know, we kind of felt out who was going to sure, do what. Sure. And well, I think there was... Kind of found our level. Yeah, and, and there there was probably, at least for me, because I'm, I'm, I'm a secretly competitive person, mm-hmm. like, there was this degree of, like, I'm going to impress this guy. Because mm-hmm. I was intimidated by you, so that, well, if I, if I go shoot this thing and edit it and it looks great... Then like you're going to be impressed with me. So like that was, the, and I'm, and 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 I still feel like this summer when we we, you know, we took that idea of a 55 minute film and made a six and a half hour documentary <laughs> series. There was still that sense to me of like I can't wait till Chris sees the final cut of this because he's going to be. I was no, I'm no longer intimidated, but like you're going to be impressed by how this thing looks, or you know, like that's something that I feel like I. Um, it, Competitive is probably the wrong word, but that's probably the right word, actually. Yeah, no, likewise. I mean, I think that's very true. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a good standard. I mean, because you're not a hypercritical person, but I also, I mean, know you well enough to know when you're impressed by something and when you know that there's something that needs to be done. And um, that's helpful, because otherwise I just have kind of intuitive checks on how things are going. So mm-hmm. it's nice to have one part of my teaching life where I actually have someone who I know is... is in his own gentle, pietist <laughs> way, going to call me on things that are not good ideas and or find ways to, well, let's not ever do that again. But, um, yeah. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it, I, I mean, I, I, we should talk about collaboration because I think CWC is really the locus for a lot of, I mean, obviously for what we do. But, I mean, it's collaborative in the sense that you are in a team and the two of us then kind of a team within a team. I also really like the idea you're collaborating with people who've taught the course before. Yeah. Because that is so alien to generally how you think about course design that, um, I think we're more prone probably to think, like, well, you're somehow collaborating with students. Like, you're in this kind of partnership, like Kathy Nevins talks about. Right. But the idea that, in some ways, you actually owe something to the people who design something you've inherited. I, I think about, said Dan Ricimo, I think about Burke's idea of, like, democracy of the dead. Uh-huh. Like, those voices actually do matter. They don't win the day, and they right. don't bind you, but you actually have a responsibility to them. Well, and, and I mean, the, the, the metaphor we use is the metaphor from... from the book of Hebrews, the cloud of witnesses metaphor. And as much as whenever we talk with students about that, I mean, we're talking about it in terms of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, the New Testament heroes of the faith, the heroes of the faith of Christian history. I mean, those types of things. But whenever I hear a prof talk about that, I instantly start to think about all the people who taught this course before, mm-hmm. the people who, divine, who designed this course. You're Mike Holmes, Neil Lettinga, Kevin Craig, Dan Taylor, mm-hmm. Virginia Lettinga, Dan Ritchie, Greg Boyd, uh, Paul Reisner, Paul Eddie, Mark. Reisner. I mean, I can just keep yeah. naming people, but yeah. I mean, like, like there's this all these people, and it's not that they're, it's not that the work we do like needs to meet their approval, but it's this sense of like I do feel like they're watching and they're feeling this thing that they built still alive. And I remember um, 
Uh, this is years ago. Uh, but it, the Lettingas left it after 2003, uh, the fall of <laughs> spring of 2003. I remember it was probably 2005 or six. They were on campus for a uh, CCCU new faculty thing. And I was presenting at that. Uh, and I just happened to run into Virginia and Neil, and I had mentioned, oh, yeah, we, you know, this was after we had started to make some tweaks and some changes to the course. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those years when ownership um, or generational shift really started to feel like it was there. And I remember sort of saying almost worried, like, yeah, you know, we, 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 we were doing some things really different. And Virginia started looking at me and said, well, of, of course you are. You're different people. But it was this idea that this thing is still alive um, and it's thriving. But part of why it's alive and thriving and flourishing is because it had a pretty seamless it has historically had a seamless shift from whoever taught it in the past who was ever teaching it now mm-hmm. um, and i think i think that's a that sort of collaboration with tradition is a really helpful thing yeah it's probably a helpful way to think about the church oh yeah and the christian college i mean this is actually what i'm writing right now is thinking about you know, probably get into pietism, but I mean, what I'm doing is thinking, is there a usable past to recover from the history of a place like Bethel that matters? Um, and it's interesting to read some of the literature like on disruptive innovation right now in a time when all colleges are trying to find whatever is going to be the new thing that will set them apart and let them survive the restructuring. You know, the best of these people say you you have DNA. You, you, you actually don't have it. Blank slate is the wrong metaphor. You, I mean, this has got to grow out of something that's already there. You, you can't just borrow it from someone else or convert to a different tradition. Um, at the same time, you can't be enslaved by a tradition and just do things because that's the way you do them because the world changes around you. And um, I, mean, I think if I were going to be excessively theological and do a preacher kind of moment here, I, I, I think about resurrection in this way, right? That there is that Gnostic impulse to say, well, this will free us then from this flawed body and we can finally do the things from it. I mean, I, I'm struck that, I mean, like, Jesus' resurrection body actually has holes in it. You know, you, you talk about woundedness a lot as you think about preaching. That, you know, there's a part of you that is scarred, and even in this profound change, you still have what came before. It, it doesn't get erased. It doesn't get eradicated. It's it's still there. And so even as we disruptively innovate in a class like CWC, it's still recognizably CWC. That DNA mm-hmm. is still there. And that's, I think that's probably true of other things that I do. It's just that I've got people like you who have a living memory of people I haven't even seen teach the course there to nudge me in that way. And I think by this point I've probably imbibed enough of that that I'm right. – Probably almost on that side of, well, okay, let's think about how it used to be done. Um, right. Well, and of some of it is to say, oh, that idea is a good idea. We used to do that, and here's what we thought of it. Yeah, right. And it's not to say not to do it, but to say, okay, well, here's what we already know about that idea. How can we then build off of that? Yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think that's, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, another thing in terms of thinking about collaborations, um, last January mm-hmm. and next January, mm-hmm. Um, we sort of upped the collaboration game a little bit um, and, and did a travel course to Europe um, for the month. Um, and that was a – it was interesting because I feel like in the last year we've created two almost polar opposite experiences between an intense travel experience with students and then teaching an online course mm-hmm. together. Um, and, and both of those sort of tug at – uh, interesting things that we value mm-hmm. and and sort of I think push us in directions that we both like and dislike. Yep. I think in both of them. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. It. I mean, in the World War One course, is especially interesting because it's a course I had already spent a lot. Of, I mean, I taught it on campus first of all, and I'd spent a lot of time designing the travel version, and then got the opportunity to invite someone to go with, and 
instantly thought of you. And so it was collaborative, but you hadn't been part of designing the yeah. course and didn't have a lot of time to invest in adding new things. But easily, my favorite part of it, well, two of my favorite parts of it were the moments where I kind of had thought, you know, Sam knows literature, Sam knows 20th century art much better than me, and, and to let you loose, especially to do the Lost Generation walking tour in Paris. And even, like, to kind of watch you plan for it while we were doing other things and then to preview that walk with you. I mean, that was that was really great because that was a kind of collaboration. I had known that this is not a class really about battles. This is actually a class about how Western culture is being changed by this experience. And so I knew that literature and art needed to be part of it. And then to be able to hand that off to you and see what would come of it was really fun. My main thing that I really liked about the class, I, I loved a lot of it. It was just that we just had a lot of time just to talk about yeah. any, I mean, from like the moment we got on the plane and talking about the fact that we both come up for promotion and we're reflecting and about just turned in long documents reflecting on teaching. And yeah. Stuff. I mean, I think we were running out of steam a little bit by the end of the three weeks in Munich, but I mean, I'm, you know, like, like I think Gavin said to you earlier today, like this, what we're doing right here probably should be a little bit like just recording one of our conversations in a pub in Oxford or England, because that's what it was like for three yeah. weeks as a chance to be in some ways free of Bethel, but never really entirely free of it, and, and thinking about everything related to a course, a department, a college, philosophy of teaching, everything. Was... Sure. Well, well, I, I, I want to respect your time. I'm not going to tell you how, what, how long it is now. Mean. You're fine in terms of time. But um, I want to move to some questions that I sort of want to ask kind of everybody that we interview. And, and I think sort of talking about sort of what, how you think about teaching and philosophy of teaching and those types of things, if you were to design – an institution. We sometimes joke about like, what if we broke away and started to like, 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 what would your what would your ideal institution, or if it's easier to think about your ideal curriculum, like, what would that look like? Um, actually, I've given too much time probably to thinking of this, and probably I, it's silly. My ideal is an ill-informed idea of what like 19th century, late 19th century colleges look. It's actually, it's actually uh, Joe's husband's college or high school that he sets up in Little Women. It's kind of what I have in mind. It'd be like, but I mean, I think what I do have in mind is A, it would be much smaller. I, mean, I, I don't know if I really would be happy with something that's a really, truly tiny private liberal arts college, but I do, I do worry sometimes that Bethel is simply too big what it's trying to do and too complex and has too many programs and it dilutes what to me is really at the core of it which is a liberal arts curriculum um, which is relationships with professors the community that's built across a lot of different boundaries um, and then the fact that Christ is at the center and not in some like we have a bunch of Christological propositions we believe in some way we can't explain you know, that is what it means to search for truth, is to search for that person. Um, and so... Well, I think it, that's where pietism yeah, helps. Right. It, is it, it provides, and this is, you know, and you've sort of been shadowly plugging this book, which doesn't exist. Right, to, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think that, to me, that was the part that, that drew me to... I mean, I, I got drawn to Bethel having anything to do with, with its particular religious tradition, but that's the thing that the pietism really grabs for me, is, is I feel like it's reaching for the inutterable things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that always frustrate me with theology. And I took a lot of theology here, and I went through the feelings you do as an undergrad at a school like this where you think theology is the most important thing, and then you realize, well, I can't really answer these questions, and we can't, how can we know? And certainty, you go through all these things, and what I come back to is there is something inutterable about the experience of reading and trying to live the gospel yeah like and that to me that that's the core of 
the parts of pietism that I get drawn to. And it allows me to say I don't know to right. a lot of other things. And and um, I hope this is okay. It allows me to say I don't care to a lot of things mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that's that that's a, a really powerful component. Yeah, I think for that reason, I think it's part of the liberal arts. I increasingly feel like the, it's perfectly fine to come to the end of a class or any experience. And I, I don't really know. I mean, I actually try to push my students more in that direction now. Like in senior sem, don't start with the thesis. Start with the question. And at the end, don't overreach. Say, I don't know what I think. I'm conflicted about this. But um, here's what we learned along the way. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's not knowledge. It's probably... You know, you're being shaped in other ways. Um, I'm, I'm working on the conclusion, and what I'm going to do for the conclusion of this book, because I'm just editing. It's actually right. 12 other people writing most of it. I give kind of a historical introduction, and at the end, to give a little bit of cohesion, I, I take up this idea of innovation, which you've heard me talk a little bit about, and this is kind of new, so I'm trialing something out on you that might make the book or not. But what, what I'm thinking is we hear this word thrown around a lot, I think often for economic purposes. Like what is going to be the next edge that you can take advantage of? And it's like these are all little tag-ons that you know help you stay afloat, right? And what I want to suggest is that for a pietist school, the mission is actually innovation. Is kind of the catchphrase I'm working on now, in the sense that pietists are seeking a new person, a new church, and a new world. And like that should be the test. You know, anytime some, a place like Bethel or or hypothetically design a new college is, is it going to help produce a new person? Is it helping produce a new church and a new world? And I mean, really, a renewed person. I mean, the sense that you're um, breathing new life into it, and that's going to be hard to define. It's going to be hard to tame. Um, and it means that you also are probably going to have a lot of friction. And so the Arenic spirit idea we talk a lot about at Bethel, that would have to be at the core of my dream of any college, is that it's a place where people are profoundly humble, profoundly open to learning, um, are comfortable with questions and loose ends, and are decently comfortable with living with difference. That, and, you know, for the most part, probably I wind up at a place back kind of like Bethel, I mean, I really would have a hard time imagining myself at a vastly different kind of institution, and I'm not sure there are that many that are really that similar on the levels I care about. So there's a plug for Bethel University. There you go. www.bethel.edu. <laughs> um, speaking of plugs, I mean, outside of outside of the the Pietist book that you're that you're editing, um, another thing that I want to ask everyone, and this is this is a question I used to ask people in college a lot, is if I if you were to recommend a book or a couple books. And then, or or pieces of media. So it could be an album, a movie, a whatever, an album, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, like, like, like that would help understand you. What would you recommend? So it's not like you're saying not that this I've is written, but that you right. You're, you're yeah. saying like you're not saying this is the best book I've ever read or this is my favorite. But to say, you know what? If you read this, you could start to get at something about me. Yeah, I mean, the one that stood out to me last year, it came out in, like, October or November, but um, the chair of Wheaton's history department, Tracy McKenzie, wrote a book that ostensibly is about the first Thanksgiving. You know, it's um, unpacking a lot of the myths that surround the pilgrims and their encounters with the indigenous population of Plymouth Colony. I, I, I'm not actually interested in that. I'm not an American historian. I'm especially not a 17th century American historian. But that's all just an excuse for him to say, how do we think Christianly about the past? And it's, I, I want to be more critical because that's how we're trained to be a scholar. But like, I just felt myself nodding a lot. My head hurt at the end. It was like, this is so much 
how I think about what it means to be Christian, first of all, um, but second, what it means to be a historian, how those two things come together, what it means to be a good citizen, um, I mean, the kind of virtues that he identifies. I mean, the fact that for him, being a historian is not really a profession. All of us on some level do this. We try to make meaning of our pasts, and there are good ways and bad ways to do it. I think if you read that, you would get, and my students have heard me now say all these things. It was kind of the running theme of my World War II class in J-Term. But you would actually learn a lot about me by reading that. And I've, I've never actually met Tracy. I've heard him speak, and we've emailed a few times. But it... It's weird. Like, I mean, in the same way that, you know, um, you and I, in some ways, were meant to teach God. I feel like, like, there, there's a weird kind of symmetry there that I don't know sure. how to understand. No, um, I, I, so, I mean, I guess I would start there. I'd, I'd love to reach and come up with an album for you that really explain right, me. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, well, like, the... For whatever reason, the one that came to mind is The Last, is the last Waltz by the band. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's because I saw Jimmy Fallon's last bit was actually a little nod to that with the Muppets. But anywho. Um, No, I mean, the reason that I've told you a few times before that I like creativity within boundaries a lot. And um, the band is this group in the late 60s, early 70s that um, is deeply collaborative, first of all. They've got one main songwriter, but three different main lead singers, and they all switch instruments. And so I like that. But they also, in their way... They're blending a lot of genres, but they work within recognizable genres. And they're trying to do something intentionally old. And they're doing it at a time when most other people are doing, like, jam band stuff. And, and the whole idea is there are no restrictions. I mean, you just go, and to me, it's a very clear difference between um, the nature of creativity. And, and this is a place where we're actually, I think, a little bit different. Like, mm-hmm. I think about the kind of literature we like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm much more drawn to genre. Um, and like within poetry, I, I, I do have this kind of, that kind of clinical sense. Like, I mean, I appreciate form right, and right. I appreciate structure. Well, right. we were, when, when we were in the Panakotech in, uh, in Munich, you like things that look like the things they look like. Right. <laughs> right. I have a hard time with non-representative had, Actually, those were great conversations great. though. I mean, I mostly were revealed by ignorance about art history, but, um, I mean, I think I got it something that, that actually, I mean, if you were to like check out my music collection, there's a kind of classicism. To it. I mean, it's rooted in something. It's got a kind of recognizable form, even if sure. it's not 12-bar blues or a three-minute pop single. I mean, like, it's not straying too far from that. Like, I think that actually would tell you something about the nature of how I think about creativity. Sure. Actually. There you uh, go. Well, great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post um, uh, one of the, the buttons at the top of the on the, the show page. We'll have um, just the uh, ongoing list of the recommendations from people. So, oh, cool. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, this has been delightful. I've really enjoyed <laughs> this, um, and and we could talk more. We probably will, I'm I, sure. I, I, because I feel like we we did the uh, the autobiography part, and now I just want to have a good conversation about um, a lot of these other things. So I think um, I think we'll be hearing more from you. Do you have anything you want to plug besides? Um, get your blog to plug. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, and you know, hopefully you've maybe found this through my blog. I hope some of my readers at least made their way to the autobiography page because um, I think you'll find some resonance there. Um, I mean, I do. I, it's become a pretty big part of my life. Um, my wife last night rolled her eyes as I wrote a blog about the Winter Olympics, which really has nothing to do with the <laughs> themes of my blog, which are uh, Christianity, history, education, and how they intersect with each other. But if you're interested, look up the Pietist Schoolman. You'll find me ranting about a lot of different things. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, that deserves its own conversation in some ways, and I also feel like I just bore people. And it feels like every other word out of my mouth is about blogging. But um, I, I do think 
it creates, again, within a kind of structure, a different kind of creativity for sure. teachers and I think also for our students. Um, and so I'm, at least in this season of my life, drawn to that as a kind of expression. So yeah. pie to schoolman dot com. com. Yep. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks. Andy. I'm going to think about how to end the show. Um, and uh, we used to end our podcast by saying, say goodnight, Stacy. And then I thought, well, I should come up with something. Then I realized we don't do our old podcast anymore. So we can just say, say goodnight, Stacy. Goodnight, Stacy. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes. On the water, we'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths. The cinnamon 